Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 458. It's generally not a good idea to follow a trend. Uh, Much better to try to create one. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. 89% of guests research a restaurant online before dining out. Your website is your first impression. So answer me this question honestly. What does your website say about your restaurant? Also, websites are no longer static brochures. They're dynamic tools that can help you drive revenue. Head over to getbento.com and see why thousands of restaurants trust Bento Box with their websites. And if you mention Restaurant Unstoppable, you can save up to $1,500 on initial setup. Get on it. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for modern small businesses. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service to take care of your team. To help support Restaurant Unstoppable, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited-time deal. Sign up today, and you'll get three months Free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Brett Odalengi. Brett, are you feeling unstoppable today? Oh, I'm feeling unstoppable, Eric. <laughs> yes. So, uh, <laughs> Thank Brett, you for having me. Oh, my pleasure, man. Uh, Brett Odolenghi began in the food industry in 1998, importing truffles from Europe and selling directly to home gourmets via uh, trufflemarket.com. In 2003, trufflemarket.com evolved into uh, artisanal foods, and Odolenghi is also the founder of Vegas Food Expo, an American food trade show designed for small and innovative companies that might not have the budget to present at larger food shows and connects them with retailers, chefs, restaurant owners, and potential investors. And honestly, I don't really know where this conversation is going to end up. I just, I'm trusting my gut with this one. Your PR uh, folks reached out to me. You seem incredible. Uh, I'm, I know it's going to be a good one, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you have for us? Sure. So uh, my lifelong idol, Steve Jobs, I decided to take a quote from him. And he says, if you if you really look closely, most overnight successes took a long time. So I completely agree with that quote. And um, as you said, I started my business almost 20 years ago in 1998. So it's been a long road, but a lot of fun. Yeah, man. And uh, I'm happy you, you mentioned that. In 1998, you're 19 years old. You're from the East Coast. You find yourself in Las Vegas uh, selling truffles to restaurants. I mean, where did this all start? Like, where'd you get the vision for this? Uh, how did you break into this industry? Yeah, actually, in 1998, I was 13, and um, so I would hunt mushrooms with my family in Pennsylvania, and we got to uh, hunt morels under the apple trees and chanterelles in the forest, and that really introduced me to cooking, and and my father grew up in Italy, so he had had grown up uh, hunting truffles and introduced me to truffles. And um, in 1998, you can imagine that the dot-com boom is just happening. 
And um, there was really nowhere in the country to buy truffles. Uh, if you were a chef, you could get them. But as, as a home gourmet, there was no nowhere to buy such a thing. So I built a, a little junky website uh, myself just using HTML, and I called it the, uh, trufflemarket.com. And it worked very well. We, um, we started supplying uh, private chefs and gourmets all over the country. It, it really worked perfectly because truffles are very light and expensive, which for the Internet is, is perfect, just uh, meaning that shipping cost is is a small portion of the overall product cost. And um, then in 2004 uh, is when I moved out to Las Vegas and really started to expand into many other products. Um, so now we have probably about 800 different products. And because we expanded the collection into uh, other foods, that's why we, we changed the name to artisanal foods. And and back then, nobody had heard the name or the word artisanal. Um, that's why we have the .com. Uh, and actually, there's also a Wikipedia page citing us because um, because the artisanal foods movement movement really hadn't happened yet. Um, so now we're we're sort of in a mature phase of that. So you start this website when you're 13 years old. Uh, was it at that time? Was it meant to be? Was it just more of a hobby? Was it meant to be uh, entrepreneurial in nature? Like, did you have a vision at this time, or how did that actually all play out? Yeah, it was completely a hobby. Uh, it was a place for me to test my business ideas, and of course, I'm living at home and going yeah. to school, so it was nice because if it failed, there really was no harm, um, and. Fortunately, it, it just uh, it did succeed, but it, it stayed small and, and gave me something to work on uh, throughout middle school, high school and college. Yeah. And um, it, it was fun to, to build it slowly. And and, um, and it's nice to start a business when there's not so much pressure to be dependent on the income, because when you're starting any business, you're likely to make a lot of mistakes and it's best to keep those mistakes small and or they don't affect you too much. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, you move out to Las Vegas in 2004 when you are 19 to attend college. Is that kind of how you ended up there? Well, yeah, I, I chose in part the college UNLV, uh, because I saw all the, all of the restaurants opening in Las Vegas and I figured there needed to be somebody to serve those restaurants. And, um, so I moved out and uh, continued the business uh, right from my dorm room, actually, at UNLV. And uh, it was it was a fun time. I would take the public bus from the college into the strip uh, with a box of truffles. And I'd walk the strip from one end to the other, uh, showing these truffles just door to door. And uh, it kind of gave me the, a good reputation among the chefs. Uh, they realized that I, I knew a lot about the foods that I sold, that it wasn't really about making the sale so much as uh, spreading knowledge and teaching people how, yeah. how different foods are produced. Okay. Um, so you're out in Las Vegas. You're, you're going to these restaurants. I mean, I'm curious when you're out in Las Vegas, who's, who's forging all these mushrooms? Like, did you have a network set up or, or did now do you have like a team of people forge, forging and like, I mean, what did your distribution look like? I'm, I'm kind of curious about that. Well, um, because we were one of the first people on the Internet selling truffles, we would get uh, contacted by hunters all over Europe and um, with endless supplier possibilities. However, mostly I would buy from one friend um, in Croatia. And a lot of people don't realize, but Croatia is um, the largest producer of white 
winter truffles, which uh, even, even more so than Italy. And um, what was a benefit to me was that uh, Croatia was, was not part of the European Union, and whereas Italy was. And Italy, any truffle coming from Italy from 1998 through 2012 was technically subject to 100% duty. Now, I don't know of a single person in those 14 years that paid that duty, but um, I didn't want to break any laws. So instead, uh, I would just bring them from Croatia where there, there was no duty. And they're, they're the identical species. Um, they, they taste the, exactly the same. There's, there's not, it's not as though one origin is inferior to the other. In fact, uh, Croatian truffles are more often perfectly round and uh, so chefs like those because mm -hmm. they, they grow in sandier soil versus the Italian truffles, which can be kind of naughty and, and irregular in shape. Interesting. So uh, you majored in hospitality and food and beverage. So were you ever looking to maybe work in the restaurant business, like working actually in restaurants or was that like the thought? Like, uh, I'm kind of curious what your intention was majoring in hospitality and food and beverage. You know, I wanted to have a degree uh, to fall back on and, um, by studying hospitality administration, it allowed me to take courses that just really fit well with um, with, with the business of selling food. It, it allowed me to study uh, cooking, but also wine, and, and really just get to understand the whole hospitality industry. Mm -hmm. So what did scaling your business look like between 2004 and 2008? Were you kind of staying flatlined, or were you also scaling the business and growing it at this point? I, I was growing it. Um, I had to hold back a little bit because I, I had uh, school to take care of. But um, toward the, the end of college, I started adding more and more customers. I, I, I only held on to about 25 or 30 restaurants that we would supply during college. And then when I saw that graduation was coming closer and that I would need to increase my income, I, I slowly started adding more and more restaurants. Um, but uh, yeah, we, I did try to hold it back a bit while I was in college. How did you have that discipline to hold it back when I'm assuming that the, the, the demand was there? Were people coming to you looking to be supplied by you? How did you know not to take on more than you could handle? Um, you know, it was a one one man show even for a couple of years after that. Uh, so it's a, it was a huge amount of work and um I think it was it was nice just uh, keeping the business a size that I could maintain it. Okay. So you graduate in 2008. Um, at this point when you graduate, are you thinking you're going to go full steam ahead with uh, – I mean, at this, were you selling more than truffles at this point? Yeah. So the, the second product um, that I sold was saffron. And actually, I was selling that uh, since I was 14 as well. And early on, I would look for expensive light products. So saffron was, was perfect also because going back to just the internet, it, it makes sense to sell something that's not going to have a high shipping cost yeah, and uh, relative to it. Yeah. So, um, so we were doing a good amount with saffron and, um, it, I would add one product at a time as I became fascinated by them. Uh, to some extent, the, the collection grew just by what I was interested in. Um, I really enjoy studying food and, and learning about how different products are made both conventionally versus the, the best possible way. And <clears throat> what, what I found was interesting is that in a lot of high-end ingredients, there is uh, an incentive to cheat 
um, and in truffles and saffron, the amount of cheating that goes on is is really a problem. And so I I like to educate the consumer and, and our chefs and, and teach them how to spot a Chinese truffle or how to identify fake saffron. And um, we would kind of I would expand in other high-end products where I felt there was a need for something more honest. Mm. Um, and um, what I realized over time was that it's not really only in high-end foods. It, virtually every food product, there is an incentive for producers and distributors to, to cheat. Um, and there's a wonderful series actually on, on Netflix right now called Rotten that really oh, yeah. makes this, this point um, apparent. And uh, shows you that whether it's olive oil or maple syrup or honey, honey so yeah. even, even more pedestrian products, um, there, there still is a huge profit motive to to adulterate that that product. And um, so I think it's important that there's companies like ours which can really uh, stand up for for a more honest product. Okay, so a lot of your passion comes from just the honesty of getting you know that authentic real food from these these. Uh, I guess suppliers all over the world to these chefs. Um, and one thing I picked up just doing my research on you and how you scaled your business is you're also listening to the chefs too. Like, oh, like not really interested in truffles right now, but do you do you have this? Can you get this? Did that kind of help you, you know, with steering your business and and, and scaling this this supplying business? Yes, that really keeps the job fun when I when I get a request for a food that I've never heard of. Um, in fact, just the other day, I got a new one that I, I'd never heard of, bitter almonds. Um, and uh, I guess bitter almonds are something that's mainly used for making aromas or flavorings, but they're normally not eaten on their own. I'd never heard of such a thing, uh, but I did some research. And so just about every week, we'll get a, a request from a chef for something unusual. And, and it, it's a lot of fun to uh, to research these things and keep learning. Mm-hmm. So... Um Man, so many potential directions we could go in right now. Uh, so working with all these uh, folks, uh, I mean, we have a lot of chefs sometimes who will break out and they'll develop a product and they're trying to get a product to market. Uh, working with all these people who are shipping products and goods to market, uh, what advice do you have for somebody? What have you noticed b- between those who are doing it right and those who are doing it wrong? So I'd say the first step is to make sure you've got a product that is truly unique. Um, you have to remember with any business that you're going to start uh, to identify the barriers to entry. What is the reason that you're the one to start this business versus everybody else? And in food, especially, there is a very low, there's generally a low barrier to entry, um, it, except for perhaps a commercial kitchen. Or so, so it's really important to have an original idea. And um, so, I would say really just to. to Educate yourself on the on the current market. Use Google, um, see what else is out there, and make sure that you're really differentiating your product from from what's available. So, I also I'm curious too. Um, you a lot of people who are uh, kind of into like the the sustainable movement of sourcing locally. What are your opinions on pulling in all these ingredients from all over the world? How how do you react to the people that think that maybe that might not be sustainable? Well. You know, it's 
for example, I have a farm north of Las Vegas where we're trying to produce the perfect chicken egg. Mm -hmm. So there are some products which make sense to produce locally. And then there are other products like truffles, which would be impossible. Um, There's nowhere in Vegas or in Nevada that you could grow a truffle. And um, so we really only import products that are coming from a place where that's the only place they're being produced. Otherwise, we do generally try to find um, producers as local as possible. But it's important to remember that distance is not the only factor in the equation. Um, it, sometimes it's actually more efficient to bring a product 1,500 miles by train versus 80 miles by car. So your local farmer's market is not necessarily uh, using or producing less carbon than than a vegetable traveling very far, you really have to take into account how that how it traveled. And um, while I do like uh, the local movement, I think you really have to look at all um, all of the aspects and in, in its impact on the environment. Okay, interesting. Um, so. Uh, I guess the original question was on uh, getting a product to market. You said that you have to really find something unique. Uh, what about just like the logistics that goes into um, marketing it and I guess shipping it? And what are, what are the biggest things that you see people getting caught up on when trying to get a product to market? So um, distribution, um, you, you have to find a distributor. In, in the U.S., there's really, um, if you're in the natural food category, there's only a couple of distributors that can get you across the entire country. So you almost have to decide, do you want to work with regional, smaller distributors uh, like Artisanal Foods is here in, in Nevada and Las Vegas? Or do you want to try for a, for a national distribution with somebody like UNFI or KEHI or one of, one of the large uh, distributors? So distribution is really key. They're the ones who are going, they're going to have the contacts with the venues and uh, either retailers or grocers or chefs. And um, so I'd say that's, that's most important for, for distribution. So most, I mean, you also, would you say most of the, the food that you're importing uh, into the country or from the country is like at the, the raw natural state? Or are you also getting people who have done some processing too? We, we try to get in finished products. Um, we're, we're not really at, uh, doing a value add where we're taking a raw ingredient and turning it into something else. Uh, we, I try to find people who are really passionate about perfecting whatever it is they make. And uh, I, to me, I find that fascinating because in my job, I get to always jump from one product to another. And I, I get to research saffron one day and bitter almonds the next but I'm, I'm so impressed by artisans who may spend their entire life or even generations perfecting a single ingredient. And um, those are the people we really try to find. So, for example, my wasabi farmer in Japan, they, uh, he's the 12th generation. His, his family has been raising wasabi for 12 generations and just perfecting how to grow them and pick the best roots from one year to the next. So um, that's really what, what I have a lot of admiration for. So I'm curious with 800 products now that you're um, that you have, that you are you know getting into your, uh, your restaurant owners and your retailers and your, your wholesale. Uh, what are you noticing from these um, the people that you're sourcing from, like the, the, the common characteristics, the values that they have, uh, trying to do like one thing really well. Like what do you pick up from them and what have you learned from them? 
uh, one thing I've noticed studying or you know talking to so many successful restaurateurs is it's the like you mentioned it's like really just trying to do that one thing really well and like dedicating their lives and generations of lives to this one thing to like you know compound off of what those have taught them and to take it to the next level. I mean, have you seen those similar things? I, I have. So normally they they identify a tradition in their area. So one that comes to mind is Bourbon Barrel Foods in Kentucky. And these people, they took a classic product like Worcestershire sauce, which most of us are only familiar with one brand. And um, they make Worcestershire sauce from scratch and then age it in bourbon barrels. Mm. And it's an extraordinary product. Um, And so I, I really love to find producers who are doing that. They're trying to take a classic or traditional ingredient and and make it the best that it can be. Okay. Interesting. So like, just like taking something in and tweaking, I mean, I feel like so many times like we're really limited to creativity because we think we, we don't ever think to take what's already been created and, and compounding off that. Like how can we take what's already been perfected and just twist it a little bit? Uh, so I think creativity really plays into this whole process of, of trying to be truly unique. Like you mentioned earlier. Absolutely. Another example I'll throw, throw out there, it's a bigger scale than, than companies we're generally working with, but you may have heard of a company called Sir Kensington's Ketchup. And this was started by a couple of friends of mine. And um, in college, they noticed that essentially there was only one ketchup that we've all grown up with. And uh, if you go to the grocery store, there are multiple brand options for virtually every product except ketchup. And so they said, well, what can we do to make ketchup better? And they looked at how the traditional one is produced, and they found that it's about 40% corn syrup and, um, and, and then just tomato paste. And so there was a lot of room to be improved in, in, in that category. So they said, okay, well, let's take out the corn syrup. Let's use natural sugar and honey. And, um, and then instead of tomato paste, we'll use whole fresh tomatoes and so they, they were able to recreate the flavor profile that we all know and love of ketchup, but doing it with high quality ingredients. And whereas they, they received a lot of flack in the beginning and a lot of people telling them that they would never make it. And how, how could they imagine even taking on such a large uh, brand? And uh, last year they sold the company for $140 million to Unilever. So uh, that was after only about five years of work. So, um, I think it really shows that a dedication to perfecting a uh, food can pay out. So, I mean, that's kind of another angle. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you, you could take something like the Worcestershire sauce and uh, age it in, uh, in, was it whiskey barrels? To like take something that's like, you know. Yeah, some, bourbon barrels. Yeah, like, like, you, like you, you don't look at Worcestershire sauce and say, how can I do this differently? But that's one way to stand out by creating, take something that's traditional and kind of twisting it. And now I'm also hearing that another way to kind of create and bring something to, to, to market is take something that's so traditional like ketchup and look at like how much we've bastardized it over the past whatever years. And then like, well, how can we bring this back to its original state and do it like just right again? So you can look at products and services that have kind of been maybe taken far away from its traditional state to be able to do it on like a massive scale. And like, how can I make this original again is another way to be truly unique is what I'm hearing from you. Yeah. I I like that idea very much um, because it's happened with, with many foods where we could return to the more traditional methods and, and have a better product than what's currently on the market. 
That's cool. So let's kind of transition to uh, the vision for this trade show. Uh, why did you think we needed a trade show like this? And what's different about this trade show, I guess? But first, let's take a minute to thank our sponsors. All right, guys, it's time to get real and answer this question honestly. Does the quality of your website match the quality of your restaurant? If the answer is no, you need to do something about it because 89% of your guests will go to your website before going to your restaurant. So you've got to make sure you're bringing it to all aspects of your business. And this is where Bento Box comes in. Not only will Bento Box help you deliver your brand and your story online, but it will help you leverage the full potential of the internet because websites are no longer static brochures. They're dynamic tools that help you drive revenue. With Bento Box, easily update menus, promote events, share press, sell gift cards, take catering orders, and book private events, plus way more directly from your website. Find out why Bento Box is trusted by thousands of restaurants around the world, including past and future guests like Suvla, Pizza Emily, 11 Madison Park, The Meatball Shop, and more. Head to getbento.com and make sure you mention Restaurants Unstoppable to get up to $1,500 off your initial setup. Payroll and benefits, it's hard. Sometimes it feels like this foreign language, especially for small businesses. I mean, you, you're too busy running your business. You don't have time to be an expert in all things taxes and regulations. That's why there's Gusto. Gusto is making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy to get things right. PC Mag and Fit Small Business have called Gusto the best payroll for small businesses. Gusto will save you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run their payroll. Gusto is more efficient and reliable. Four out of five customers actually reduce payroll errors after switching to Gusto. People who succeed in this industry have access to systems and information, and Gusto will provide both. You no longer have to be a big company to get great technology, great benefits, and great service. To help support the show, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and get three months free once you run your first payroll. Just go to gusto.com slash unstoppable. G-U-S-T-O dot com slash unstoppable. We're back. And again, the question was, what was your vision for this trade show? Why did you think we needed a trade show like the Las Vegas Food Expo. Yeah, so I've been going to trade shows my entire life, um, and uh, I used to look forward to trade shows like they were Christmas. And uh, so now that I live in Las Vegas, which is the convention capital of the United States, I well, since I've been here, I've felt that we needed a food trade show that was really worthy of our culinary community here. So, um, I mean, we've got some great shows. We have the Pizza Expo. We have um, uh, Cater Source for caterers. But there, there isn't something really uh, bringing food producers that that would be of interest to grocers and, rest- and restaurateurs and, and chefs. So, it's I started off years ago by organizing small. Uh, in-house shows with my own suppliers and we would do these um, at all the different hotels on the strip they were a lot of fun the chefs enjoyed them and then in 2015 I decided that it was time to turn this into a real trade show and uh, build a team and it took two years to organize the first one Uh, it was a massive amount of work you can imagine uh, two years full-time with a whole team 
to organize our first show, which was in March of 2017. Um, now we're on to our second show, which is coming up April 15th and 16th. And um, we, we, we built this really to uh, be a new type of trade show. The, the current food trade shows in the country are in my opinion, they're prohibitively expensive to small, young food companies. Uh, a 10 by 10 booth is at minimum $5,000 for, for a company to participate. And, and there are a lot of great ideas and wonderful entrepreneurs that might not have so much money to launch their product. So it, it's cheaper to do things in Vegas. We have lots of convention space and we have beautiful, inexpensive hotel rooms. So it's really the perfect place to have a, a, a trade show. And uh, it allows us to offer a space at about a quarter of the normal price. Um, so by, by making it so accessible, we get some, some really interesting food companies. Um, we actually spend the whole year looking at tens of thousands of, of food companies. We we, we look at their, their idea, their concept, how they executed it, their package design. Um, and we ask ourselves, is this a product that's poised to be discovered? Is it something that we can see in, in a grocery store uh, down the road? Or is it something that we can imagine chefs appreciating? And if the answer is yes, then we invite that, that small company to participate in our trade show. And uh, this year we'll have 150 really fascinating food producers of all different types. It, it's diverse. We, we try to have a little bit of everything and not too much of any one category. So um, you'll find cheese and chocolate, and charcuterie, caviar, foie gras, meats, produce, seafood, uh, really just about everything you can imagine when you walk our aisles. And uh, you get to taste these things and meet the people who are producing them. And, um, it's a rare opportunity uh, to, to, to do that. So I, mean, I think we kind of talked about it earlier. You said that you're really looking for uh, uh, people who are poised to be discovered or products that are poised uh, to be discovered. Uh, when do you know you have something? How do you know that like, this product is different than that product and that it's poised to be discovered? Oh, it, when you see it, it normally jumps out at you. Um, <laughs> Give me an example. There, sure. So... Um, for example, we've all seen uh, chicharrones at, at uh, ethnic markets or in the grocery store, perhaps, and ch uh, chicharron being a, a fried pork skin. Now, this is something which a lot of people haven't uh, tasted or maybe they were scared of it and never really gave it much thought. Um, there's this wonderful company called uh, Pork Clouds, and they fry the pork skins in olive oil. Um, and they get this beautiful, fluffy, light uh, chicharron, which is just, it's, it's an exceptional product. And, and then it's packaged beautifully as well. And, um, and it's priced right. So it's something which you can see a gro any grocery buyer is going to say, gosh, uh, my, the chicharrones we're selling currently don't move that fast. But this product is really going to grab uh, the eye of, of, of a new customer base and, and grow that customer base. Um, so that we're introducing this product to more people. And um, so that company is doing very well, growing very quickly. Uh, they do a, a lot of education, uh, pointing out, for example, that pork rinds have seven times more protein and 10% fewer calories than potato chips. So, um, you know, just th that product, or I mentioned the Worcestershire sauce, 
there's uh, certainly many others at our show and um, that, that jump out at you. So it's funny that you mentioned pork rinds because I'm out here in Thailand right now. And uh, for the first time ever, um, I'm at this like street noodle shop and uh, we're getting noodles and there's pork rinds on the table. And I'm, I'm with my buddy. And I'm like, what are the pork rinds? I've never seen that. Like, I don't get it. And he's like, oh, it's for the noodles. I'm like, what do you mean? The pork rinds in noodles, like in like the broth of noodles is so good. It's so incredible. Have you ever done that before? I have not done that. No, I've had them in a taco, which I found unusual. Next time you have noodles, get some pork brines and bring them with you. It's amazing. They absorb the uh, the broth and it's just so good. Uh, I digress, but anyway, oh, I'll give that a try. Thank you. So yeah, no problem. Um, you mentioned something earlier that kind of caught my attention, and I don't know if it um if it if you know you said it uh, but you said it and you said I used to look forward to trade shows like there were Christmas. Um, so I don't know if that was a, a slip or whatever. Are you saying, do you think that trade shows have kind of, uh, lost their value since well, you really first look forward to him or like, why did you used to look forward to him and not so much anymore? Uh, well, uh, okay. It, I still, I admit, I still look forward to them. I love <laughs> trade shows, but, um, because they help us find new things yeah. e- even now, but to some degree, the larger shows have become stagnant, uh, meaning that they have the same the same companies year after year because only the largest companies can afford mm. to participate. And so there's not a lot of change. There's usually not a lot of new products from one year to the next. And um, our goal with the Vegas Food Expo is to always be very new. We, we want most of our exhibitors each year to to be to be new companies. Uh, that makes our job a little bit harder because it means that we actually have to um, sell out the space to an entirely new group of, of, of exhibitors each year. But from the attendee standpoint, it, it creates value because you know when you come to our show that you're going to find dozens of products uh, that you, you wouldn't have seen anywhere else. Awesome. So uh, what will be, aside from I guess, I guess what's the the biggest unique selling proposition that this trade show has that other trade shows are missing? Well, um, we're doing a lot of things differently being in Vegas. We're trying to make this, uh, educational and fun and, and, uh, and entertaining. So, um, so we, we have, uh, in addition to the expo hall and seeing all of these new small, great companies, we also have uh, a cook-off competition going on. It's actually been going on in Vegas for over 10 years, um, usually on a Saturday night after the chefs get off work from about midnight to 3 a.m. We call them the back-of-house food truck brawls. And we, there's four food trucks, and then two chefs from the strip are compete. They're given a basket of mystery ingredients. Each one gets a food truck, and they're allowed to use anything on that food truck. They uh, then get 30 minutes to create what they can with these mystery ingredients. And then it's judged by a panel of of judges, usually a couple of food critics on there. And uh, so we've teamed up with them. And that's going to be at our convention this year, uh, both for our kickoff party and then during the the expo, right in the expo hall both days. It's going to be a lot of fun. The, The products are donated by the exhibitors. And we, we try not to make it too easy for the chefs. So, for example, um, we wouldn't want to use filet mignon. We'd rather give them uh, beef heart or tongue or something. And uh, so that, that's going to be really interesting to watch. 
And um, we've got the performers from the Cirque du Soleil Michael Jackson One Show. Uh, they're going to be doing some performances and giving out tickets uh, right in our expo hall. We have um, some amazing presentations. There's uh, Philip Preston, the founder of PolyScience. Uh, you probably know their brand mostly from immersion circulators. Yeah. Uh, they were the pretty much the only company making immersion circulators for about 20-some years. And without them, we wouldn't have sous vide cooking today. Um, so Philip is going to bring with him all of these prototypes of, of products that he didn't bring to market. And I'm really excited to see these, all kinds of kitchen gadgets. Uh, he was telling me about one, which is a chamber that he can actually cause snow, snowflakes, not shaved ice. It's, it'll actually snow within this chamber. Oh, and uh, so he makes snow out of strawberry juice and all sorts of things. What? Then we, <laughs> Wait, what, what are you yeah. going to use those? How would you use that? I'm serious. Like a strawberry juice snowflake. What were that? Like the, the creativity. <laughs> He said he made himself one strawberry snow cone uh, and then realized that the machine was going to be far too expensive to actually sell. <laughs> and so uh, that's one that didn't go to market. But um, oh, I, I'm curious to see all the others that he brings, too. And then uh, we've got the Google Trends team coming. So this is a really interesting group of people. They, they really exist in Google for their top 30 advertisers. Uh, they normally don't give presentations, but they analyze search data to see food trends up to two years in advance. So they can then tell a food producer or a chef, perhaps you could take inspiration from this data for your menu and say, well, we see the, the trend coming in purple vegetables. Uh, so maybe we want to start featuring purple vegetables on the menu or they were able to spot the cauliflower trend years before it happened. And, um, if you're not familiar, cauliflower this year is selling about over twice as much as usual. Mm. And um, so some really good presentations. We have Piff the Magic Dragon, a local entertainer. Uh, he was made famous uh, on uh, America's Got Talent, but he does um, magic and comedy, and he's going to incorporate uh, foods with that. So um, I think we, we try to make our trade show here in Vegas uh, a little different uh, as where you can you can do business and and uh, but also have fun while you're while you're at it. Awesome. Uh, so we're talking about trends, and this is kind of how I wanted to wrap up the conversation. Uh, I'll be honest. Usually, when it comes to trends, I say don't follow trends. Don't be somebody who's looking for trends because by the time you if you like create a whole business around a trend, by the time you get you know investors, you build a team, you build momentum, the new trends on its way. Uh, do you agree or disagree with that statement? I think that is right on the money. Uh, yeah, it's generally not a good idea to follow a trend. Uh, much better to try to create one. And okay. um, for example, when we go to these other trade shows, we'll see that they each year there's there's one or two trends that sweep the the floor where you have too many companies all piling into the same category. Um, I was recently at a at a natural products expo. And I couldn't believe how many popcorn companies have sprung up. And um, it, it just struck me that I don't understand how uh, they could be making money with so many companies selling a product with, with so little differentiation. Um, there's, there's just so many of these coming up. There's also, I've noticed, beets. Beets are very big. Uh, we see tons of, of products of BET, 
uh, you know, like the red vegetable and um, chickpea products. Um, the, the other one that I think is a bit saturated right now is bone broth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I haven't uh, th- this year, especially we saw it uh, coming a couple years ago, but it's really cresting right now where there's just uh, an endless number of companies coming out with products with bone broth. And it's an interesting trend. Uh, it, there is some place certainly for bone for, for bone broth. It may, it's a great way to start off a, a base or stock in your kitchen. But a lot of them are pushing it for health benefits, which is a strikes me as a little bit odd, just because you, you could get far more uh, collagen. Basically, anybody selling bone broth is saying that we need more collagen in our diet. But you could get far more collagen from having a bowl of Jello, jello yeah. or a, hand, a handful of gummy bears than you could from drinking a huge pot of bone broth. So um, it, it has its place, but I think uh, people really need to, to be careful before they build a business that's um, trying to ride the wave of, of a trend. So if, if you agree um, that, you know, trends, you know, kind of going to these trade shows to find out what's trending isn't necessarily the purpose of going to these trade shows because we don't want to be following the trends. Like what is the purpose of these trade shows? Well, if you're a retailer or a grocery store or a chef, uh, then it's perfect because um, the trade shows are still, they are, they're ahead of the consumer awareness. So, um, you can kind of pick the winners uh, when, when you're at a trade show. You might you might recognize well, th- this is the the best bone broth of all the brands, and maybe this this one does make sense to use. Um, so, I, I think there still is value in going to to trade shows and seeing the trends, if 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 only to to pick the winners. Okay, interesting. Um, you know, I think the other thing too is just you know to you know help these small uh, smaller companies like you're 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 the way that you're going about doing this, making it. Uh, so it's really to showcase those companies that are, that are unique and uh, wouldn't normally have the opportunity to be to be put in front of these uh, you know p- potential buyers. Uh, I think that's really cool, helping the small guy out, uh, and then too just to see what people are doing to to go to these trade shows to see uh, you know the creativity that goes into some of these products and that that might spur a, a, a new idea, right? Like, Oh, like they took that, like I could take that same approach and apply it to this thing over here. And just to, I think I personally believe that the, the future, uh, the, the, the brands that are going, um, going to emerge are going to be those who are most creative and maybe who have the, the best value or I guess moral driven businesses that are, are doing something, not because, of necessarily the profit, but like it's the right thing to do to, like, to take catch up and to do it right. You know what I mean? Um, I think that's kind of the, the way of the future is going back to the way things were and to really truly take something uh, that has never been done and to like twist it uh, and make it truly unique. Yeah. Um, you, you mentioned catch up. And so what's interesting is sometimes you get a second wave of innovation in a trend. Mm. So once Sir Kensington's proved that you could make a ketchup company and that it could work. Now what we've seen is a, a whole slew of other ketchup companies starting, and some of them have some great ideas. So, for example, ketchup, before the introduction of the tomato to Europe in the 1600s, ketchup was not red. It wasn't made with tomatoes. It was made with all different types of fruit. And so there's this, uh, this really fantastic little company, a, a tiny company called Chups, and um, we, we stock their product in our store. I love it. it. 
he has about uh, six different types of ketchup, none of them with tomato. All They're still savory, not sweet, but each one uses a different type of fruit. It could be pumpkin or plum or uh, mango, and, and they're exceptional. And uh, so I, I think that's very cool. We also saw over the last few years a huge trend in, in nut butters, um, you know, whether it's almond butter or walnut butter, all these different things. And, and while that category started to get a little bit overcrowded, now we're seeing the second wave where you have products being made with nut butters. So you might have nut butter cups. Mm. So now instead of always just having the traditional peanut butter cup, now you could get a hazelnut butter cup. And to me, that's really a great idea. There's a, I know of two different companies right now going down that path. And, um, and, and there's so, so innovation sometimes can can still come from a, a trend which is already peaked. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, going to these trade shows to see what's happening now and to take what's happening now and, and making it your own, tweaking it in in really doing something that's truly unique and creative, I think is the way of the future. Not necessarily following the trends, but uh, taking what is trending and making it. To, taking it to the next level or uh, like you just said, just like really uh, the second generation wave of trends uh, is interesting. Um, anything we haven't discussed up to this point that you're hoping we would discuss that you could bring more value to the conversation? Well, um, all I can say is I hope that your listeners, uh, if they have the time to take a Vegas vacation out in April, we'd love to have them all. We have a, a deal going on on our website right now, VegasFoodExpo.com where you can get admission to our show and a hotel room for two nights for just $199. It's a really good deal. It's actually much less than those hotel rooms cost. And um, we also, if you, if you want to come, but maybe you have your own place to stay, you can use a discount code on our website. Uh, it's just SAVE25, uh, SAVE spelled out, S-A-V-E, and then the number 25. So your listeners are welcome to use that code and, uh, and get a discount on, uh, on admission. But I think anybody who's interested in food will will gain a, a whole lot from from being at this show, and uh, it should be a great time. So hope to see you all there. So before we say goodbye, is there anything else uh, that you want to make sure you you lay on us before uh, we stop the recording? Yes, just a couple of things for our exhibitors. Um, unfortunately, this won't be open to attendees, but for the small businesses that are exhibiting with us, they're going to have a very rare opportunity to meet one on one with. A friend of mine named Chip Heath. He's a best-selling author and professor at Stanford of marketing. Um, if you've ever heard the term "sticky" as it pertains to marketing, he's the one who coined that term. It comes from his book "Made to Stick," and um, the idea is to create a marketing plan that is going to really resonate with your audience, so they remember the product. So. He's fascinated by small food companies. He's a foodie himself, and he's going to hear how these businesses are marketing their products and try to tweak their efforts so they can be a little more effect effective. So I think that's a great opportunity for the, the exhibitors. And then um, for attendees, one last thing I, I left out, we've got a whole Berkshire pig coming from an amazing farm in Iowa called Becker Lane. It's uh, one of the best Berkshire pig farms in the country. And then two gentlemen are going to butcher the entire pig and show us how to make charcuterie from scratch. So uh, it'll be a really interesting presentation where um, we can see some experts uh, make things like pancetta and um, uh, 
all of the different different cured meats that we we are used to eating. Beautiful. And I'll have the the links to uh, the show in the show notes uh, and I'll have what you just share with us uh, kind of spelt out in the show notes so people won't have to remember all, all the, the discount codes and everything. Um, Brett, thanks again for uh, taking the time to uh, share kind of what's happening out there with the trends, uh, the food trends and uh, just sharing some knowledge on how to kind of if we want to get something to market, some of the things we should be considering. Uh, it was a really interesting conversation. And I guess there is no questioning that you are unstoppable. Oh, I appreciate <laughs> that. Thank you so much for having me. Oh Art. man, my pleasure. Cheers. Well, there's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. And uh, I'll be honest, I didn't really know where that conversation was going to go. Uh, my gut was telling me it was going to be a good conversation. I liked a lot of the values that... Brett had, uh, you know, giving opportunity to the small guy. And, and that's why they created this food expo uh, to really showcase those small. Uh, sorry if you guys can hear that motorcycle going by, uh, but to really showcase those small, uh, I guess, creatives that are out there, people who are trying to, to, to get noticed who may not necessarily have the, uh, the money, the capital behind them to get the attention they deserve. So uh, really uh, excited for this expo. I wish I could attend it. I'm, I'm not going to be able to make it. I'm on the other side of the planet. But uh, if you are uh, in the States and you want to uh, have an excuse to go to Las Vegas, uh, this might be the one. It's, again, I think April the 15th and 16th. And uh, if you use the links in the show notes, head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash Vegas Expo. Uh, you will be able to find the links there to uh, get that two nights stay for $199. That's a pretty sweet deal, plus access to the expo. I would look into that. It sounds like it's going to be a good time. Um, some of the big takeaways for me in this episode uh, is just the idea around uh, don't follow trends, create trends. Uh, and you can look at what's trending and compound off of it. Take what's what's interesting, what's, what's uh, catching a lot of traction, and see how you can make it different. Don't go out and copy it verbatim, uh, but take it and make it your own. Uh, that's better than uh, you know just doing a, a carbon copy. Uh, really, really get creative. And on that note, as far as creativity goes, uh, I'll tell you guys to check out my my episode with Karen Page. That was episode 419. So head over to restaurantunstoppable.com slash 419. Uh, you can check out that episode. I think it will kind of help get those creative juices going because we discussed her book, Kitchen Creative, and it's just a, a really cool episode there. Uh, also, uh, like always, guys, you know how to reach out to me, Eric at restaurantunstoppable.com and Eric Cacciatore on Instagram and Twitter. Let me know how I can serve you. Let me know how I can make this show better. Let me know who you want to hear from. Let me know anything my ears are open and uh especially now just because i'm working on the website trying to make it more user friendly and there's a lot of cool things i want to do uh now is the time for you to tell me what you think it, the, the restaurant unstoppable website needs so i'm my ears are open let me know and help me spread uh the word about this mission to empower aspiring restaurant owners with the stories and advice of those proven to be great uh, that's what we're here to do, to share knowledge, to compound off of what we already know to be true and to take it to the next level and to really make it about us, not about me or you, but just all of us and uh, paying it forward to the next generation. So if you dig that and you can get behind that, share this podcast with everybody and anyone you know aspiring to be great. All right, guys, thank you so much. 
for sticking around this long. Until next time, peace out.